0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema.
0: This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And Rob, ever since we started doing Weird House Cinema... I think I knew that one day would be the day we did Halloween 3. I've always (laughs) known it was coming. It was like destiny. I I could see over the mountain ranges of time, and I knew this would be waiting for us. (laughs) It was inevitable. You know, a few years back, I think it was uh, when we were Doing a guest spot on Movie Crush with Chuck Bryant. Uh, it, it may have been somewhere else. I don't. remember. You and I were having a conversation on Mike somewhere mm-hmm. that we were talking about John Carpenter's Halloween, which uh, which I of course cherish as a as a wonderful horror movie, a near perfect horror classic, a uh, movie that has been copycatted so much and and yet somehow has still never lost its uh, its uniqueness and it, and its uh, thrilling scary power. And somebody asked, it might have been Chuck, uh, asking if it was my favorite John Carpenter movie. And I still remember at the time being surprised by my own response, though I can't deny that I spoke my true feelings. Not only is the original Halloween not my favorite John Carpenter movie, it's not even my favorite Halloween movie. Because there in the back of my mind always is Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. I mean, was I joking? Was I joking in saying that I like Halloween 3 better than the original Halloween? Kind of, but not really. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the Halloween sequels are largely just dismal, depressing trash. I I dare you to watch Halloween 5 all the way to the end. It's like if you can do it it's 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 such a a miserable experience that fills you with pain it's like being dared to drink like a, a you know a a swimming pool full of stagnant water with mosquito eggs in it um so so how could it be the case that there's this Halloween sequel that i like at least as much as i like the original Halloween movie i don't know but that's what we're going to try to figure out today I mean, I think you're right
1: to single this out as a favorite John Carpenter film, because no, no matter where the credits uh, end up uh, falling, uh, John
0: Carpenter's fingerprints
1: are all over this baby.
0: Well, that's funny. So, I said it was my favorite Halloween movie. Uh, I would. I don't know if I'd say it's my favorite John Carpenter movie, especially since it was, as you're saying, not directed by or written by John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not officially, but I think on IMDb, he gets an uncredited writer credit.
1: Uh, so, I mean, it, I guess it depends on, on, on how exactly you shake it out. But officially, no, it, was, it certainly was not directed by him and it was not officially written by him in any capacity.
0: I think he and Deborah Hill at least both get story credits on it, which may be just a thing that's carried over from them, like creating the- The franchise itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah created Because uh, John Carpenter wrote the original Halloween and, and uh, together with Deborah Hill, they, they wrote the first movie and created the characters. Though actually, the characters don't recur in this movie. That's one of the weirdest things about it. So warning that this discussion today, this is a 40-year-old movie, but we will- uh, pretty much be revealing all of the spoilers and and plot twists and everything like that in the movie. So don't listen yet if you haven't seen it and you want to be surprised by everything in this, this bonkers cinematic God mode excursion. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the weird things about Halloween 3, I guess that we're just trying to allude to is, so this is a movie that was not directed by John Carpenter, was at least not Totally written by John Carpenter. He gets some kind of unofficial writing credit, you're saying. He may have done a pass on the script or something like that. And it does not feature any recurring characters or plot elements from Carpenter's original movie at all. Nothing. Uh, unless apparently the, I think you, you, uh, your, your love of novelizations of strange films at some point led you to the Alan Dean Foster novelization of season of the witch, which had something connecting them.
1: Yeah. Apparently there's some sort of a, a, a tangential connection made between the masks in this film and the masks worn by Michael Myers. But I, I have not actually read the novelization yet. I own a copy of it, uh, but it's
0: on my desk. at work. So Alan Dean Foster fan poser. This was it like, no, I can't even remember if it was Alan Dean Foster oh surely it was I, we got to look I, this up confirm
1: <laughs> I mean there's there's it stands a chance there's always a 75 percent chance that Alan Dean Foster wrote the uh, the the, uh, the the novelization but I, I don't recall who wrote this one
0: <laughs> <laughs> No, we were totally wrong it's not it's by somebody named Jack Martin Oh, okay, well there we go. Are you familiar with the, the works of Jack Martin?
1: I think I looked him up when I was excited about buying this paperback, and uh, I think it's a, it's a pseudonym used by another author, but I was, I'm was i not familiar with that other author, so I can't really speak to that.
0: Okay, we'll start this off with a big whiff. I was completely wrong <laughs> about uh, that being Alan Dean Foster. You had a 75% and, chance of being correct, though. <laughs> That's like some Scott Steiner math. Mm-hmm. Um Okay, no, no, no. But okay, so we said not directed by John Carpenter, not written by John Carpenter, and does not feature any recurring characters or plot elements from the original movie. And yet, to me, Halloween 3 feels, it doesn't just feel at home in the John Carpenter Halloween cinematic universe. It feels like dead center of that universe. It is the bullseye of of the target that I think about when, when I think about the John Carpenter cinematic style. Uh, this movie is the Carpaween Nexus. It looks like Carpaween, It sounds like Carpaween, It feels like Carpawine. And it feels good. <laughs> now, all that aside, uh, this movie is largely hated. Uh, it, it has started to Gain a sort of cult following, I think. In recent years, I think it's not just us. Other people have started to pick up on and enjoy this film. But when it was first released, it was totally mocked and derided by critics. It was everybody was just like, "Where's Michael Myers? What is this?" Um, so, what did they miss that we we're picking up on? I'm not quite sure, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we just have a heightened affinity for the this genus of the lowbrow absurd, or uh, m- maybe this is one of those movies, and th- there are others like it that just kind of needed to age for a while, needed to age in the oak barrels of time before it could be appreciated for the succulently ludicrous concoction that it is. I think it was in talking about this movie that I first articulated the concept of a of a rub the fur movie when we were mm-hmm. talking about it with Chuck Bryant on on Movie Crush. There are there are movies where the primary pleasure is not located in story elements that can easily be described in words or you know like plot or character. The, there are just these movies that are about audio visual texture, they're to be experienced in the same way that you would experience the soft fur of a chinchilla. Like you just kind of have to put your executive function into low power mode and rub the fur.
1: Yeah, I know. I'd have some definite thoughts on this this question though about, first of all, the the people who are saying, where's Michael Myers? Um, I mean, on one level, there is an answer to that. Michael Myers is in the film because you see the Halloween, uh, the first Halloween movie playing uh, in a bar. Yeah. Uh, I think a couple of different times, TVs are on and the original Halloween movie is playing.
0: Yeah, there's so, a great a scene where our our protagonist, played by Tom Atkins, who is a surgeon, I think, is on his lunch break and he's getting drunk in a bar and and Halloween comes on TV. Yeah, so it's um, uh, so so he's there if you really need him to
1: be there. But I think more more to the point, like the reason this 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 film, Halloween three discards michael myers is that we already had halloween one which is a i mean it was a real trendsetter it was is a is a, an essential slasher film uh it's not one of my favorite films i feel like it's it like a lot of trailblazers other films came after it and i don't not saying they necessarily did it better but maybe they did it bigger and they did it in ways that uh, maybe sort of shocked the zeitgeist a little bit more you know um but without Michael Myers and the first Halloween movie and John, John Carpenter's vision for that film, it, we wouldn't have had all these other things. Um, but then we had a Halloween two, and that was the, the that was the bigger second scoop of that franchise. And I'm not sure who really wanted or needed a third helping
0: after that. <laughs> well i mean they kept doing it i mean and yeah. they're still doing more as we record this i just found out they're doing another one of the sequel to the recent halloween movie that came out a couple years ago uh and and you notice how in the halloween franchise like they keep trying to do a movie where it's like okay this is definitely the last one. You could mm-hmm. not have another one off after this because we chopped off Michael Myers' head or because Laurie Strode is now dead or because, I don't know, a million different... that We set him on fire and we watched him become a pile of ashes. Um, they've done that a million different ways and every time a couple years roll by and somebody, I guess somebody's bank account is starting to look a little light and they're like, uh, we need another one.
1: Yeah, because the, I guess it comes out of the idea, like the name itself is going to be enough to get people in theaters. And that was kind of the idea with Halloween 3, right? I mean, it's like, okay, we've got the name. Why do we have to do this whole Michael Myers thing again? Let's turn it into an anthology um, um, series. Let's just have each Halloween season, we're going to put out a Halloween film, But it doesn't have to be Michael Myers. It can be something entirely different. It can be a weird kind of pagan sci-fi adventure. (laughs) Uh, And we'll have some of the the same touches there. We'll have that, 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 you know, the carpenter fingerprints will be there, uh, but it will be
0: its own thing. Yes, and so that was the idea behind the movie that became Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. I believe it was based on a script that was just called Season of the Witch, or at some point in the development yeah. it was, which was already the name of another movie that had come out years before that had different themes. So I, I think, I don't know, that, that that whole thing is kind of weird. but No, um, but it's very similar to something we've seen in other franchises,
1: including uh, the Tales from the Crypt franchise, Demon mm-hmm. Knight, which we I think we just reran – that episode where that was a pre-existing script. And then someone said, Hey, let's make this our first Tales from the Crypt movie. And so they tweaked it a bit and it was good to go. Uh, I think they did that a little bit in like the Hellraiser franchise as well. Uh, like, Oh, this script looks good. Let's throw some Cinebites in
0: there and uh, green light this sucker. Right, right. So th- they were saying, okay, here's just a totally unrelated horror horror script. Um, and we're going to say this is the next in the Halloween movie anthology. Yeah. And every year there's going to be a Halloween movie that will have nothing to do with the Halloween movies that came out before, except that maybe it would be, I don't know, uh, produced by the same people. They might all be produced by John Carpenter and, and associates and maybe directed by people who were part of John Carpenter's circle. Like Halloween 3 was is uh, wonderful. Wonderfully directed by Tommy Lee Wallace who was uh who had worked with John Carpenter on the previous Halloween movies and would go on to do other things like uh, you know he directed the TV version of It and stuff like mm-hmm. that but um but so it, i i got i got the feeling that that was kind of the idea that it would become sort of a thing where the Carpenter Club would let somebody do a new Halloween series horror movie every year yeah and I guess I always just assumed—I I forget when I watched this for the
1: first time, but I've, I've loved it for a while, and I always just thought it was one of these cases where the idea was maybe a little ahead of its time, the mainstream, I guess, still wanted Michael Myers, and some of us found things to love about this film, and maybe we just did it too late. I think I'd, always, I'd read before you know, that Carpenter was fond of the film, and you know, he didn't have any problems with it. He didn't think it was a turkey or anything, but it just things didn't line up for it to be the financial success that um, the studio needed it to be. Um, but I, I wasn't really sure all that much how it was received during the day. Uh, but then uh, in the past you know, couple of years, uh, I picked up the Michael Weldon books, the Psychotronic uh, Film Guides, including the Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film. And I uh, I have to say, you know, I'm, the first thing I did was look up some of my favorite films that were covered in that book and see what, what Weldon had to say about them. And so I, of course, looked up Halloween 3, and there's, there is a listing for it. But one of the super interesting things about it is that this book came out in 1983, and Halloween 3 came out the year before, in 1982. So at the time of publication this was the most recent Halloween movie. Um, this, you know, so it, it seemed like this was the course. Michael Myers had not come back. Um, now, uh, Weldon, uh, I'm not going to read Weldon's whole write-up for it, uh, but he, he, of course, digs it. But he ends his review with, quote, annual Halloween features with unrelated plots are planned. So, uh, so it's, it's kind of an interesting time capsule to go back and think, like, this was, this was the course. And the idea was, like, of course, we're going to get more Halloween movies with weird, wonky, Non-Michael Myers things going on in them.
0: I, I wish that had happened too. I, I think maybe I uh, love the original Halloween more than than you seem to. Uh, but even then, I you know I I don't thirst for additional Michael Myers movies after after that first one. I mean, I I kind of enjoy a few of the sequels, maybe a few. I don't know. Like Halloween H two O is cheesy, but it's kind of fun. Um, but mo- <laughs> most of them are just drak. And so I I didn't need more after the first one. And and if it had turned into this, if this had come true, I would be I would be so happy.
1: Yeah, imagine the film. What kind of films would we have received in the future? I'm not sure. Uh, that alternate reality is, uh, is tempting, though. Um, but yeah, at the end of the first Halloween movie, I feel like it's a, it's a pretty perfect slasher film. You know, uh, Donald Pleasant's character shoots him dead, and he's like, I got him. The nightmare is over. And then Halloween 2 kicks off with, actually, I missed him. We're going to need another picture for me to finish well, the job.
0: <laughs> well, no, you forget the stinger at the end of Halloween one is they go out and they look and the body is missing. Oh, uh, um, wow. Well. But okay. I don't think that invites a sequel. I mean, yeah. to me, that's like Halloween one. That should have that been done there. I think it should have gone Halloween one. Then they should have made season of the witch and then kept doing anthology stuff forever. <laughs> but here we
1: are. So let's go ahead and have, uh, let's have the elevator pitch for this puppy,
0: Uh, just, just to get the official plot points down. Well, okay, here you go. It's actually pretty straightforward. Tom Atkins plays Dan Chalice, a beer-chugging surgeon who joins forces with Stacey Nelkin to investigate the mysterious assassination of her father, a humble toy and novelty salesman, and their sleuthing leads them to a strange company town in Northern California called Santa Mira, in which all life and culture seems to revolve around the local Halloween mask factory. Now, that would be the more straightforward pitch that doesn't do any spoiling, uh, but but let me give you the spoiler pitch, because I think that, that might get our listeners more interested. And it's that Dan O'Herlihy plays an ancient druid warlock who commands an army of magical androids <laughs> filled with frozen orange juice. And the warlock hates children and hatches a plot to massacre the children of America by manufacturing booby-trapped Halloween masks which contain microchips made out of pieces of the Stonehenge magic rock, which when triggered by an embedded signal in a TV commercial that will air on Halloween night, shoot lasers that transform the heads of these children into crickets and snakes. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I was uh, in, in, a,
1: in, a, in an effort to try and understand how this film was received uh, when it came out. I looked up Roger Ebert's review. Uh, Ebert said that he did not understand what the villain was trying to
0: accomplish and uh, <laughs> subsequently gave it one and a half stars. Boo! <laughs> come on. Ebert, I, I love you, but you missed the mark on this one. Um, man, you, you, you should you have gone into rub the fur mode. Then I think you would have <laughs> understood. He was capable he was certainly capable of rubbing the fur I mean that's yeah. the weird thing about
1: Ebert reviews it's like it, it's like, half the time it feels like I'm either 100% with him or I'm just completely opposed to everything he's laying down about the the film
0: but yeah well I mean so I as somebody who adores the, this this bizarre movie um I I get a mixed uh, reaction when I when I show it to people. I mean, some people I've recommended it to love it and and they're right there on the Halloween 3 train with me. And some people are like, "I can't believe I watched that. What a piece of trash." And they're like mad about it. And you know, normally I I don't try to argue with people about subjective responses to art and entertainment. I I just don't do I don't care, yeah. you know. If yeah. if you don't like something I like, that's fine. and Vice versa. For, this is like one exception. This is one in which I'm like, oh, okay, you didn't like it. I guess you don't know how to have fun, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right.
1: The, 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 the lion is drawn in the sand regarding Halloween 3.
0: Um, th- there was a thing I came across, I don't remember where I read this, it might have been somewhere online, but uh, I found a quote where Vincent Canby, the movie critic, was talking about this movie, and he described it as, quote, anti-children, anti-capitalism, <laughs> anti-television, and anti-Irish all at the same time. Oh, I don't know about it. It's really
1: anti-all of those things. It's, it's, <laughs> no. it's anti-at least one of those things, but, um, yeah. but I don't think it's particularly anti-children.
0: No, I don't think the movie is anti – well, some of the children in it are truly obnoxious, and I think they're supposed to be. But uh, the villain is anti-children.
1: Oh, well – Well, yeah, I guess he is. Obviously,
0: that doesn't mean the movie is anti-children. Usually, the things that your villain hates doesn't mean that the filmmakers hate them.
1: Now, I, I, just to come back to Michael Weldon, I will read one more quote from his uh, his write up. He said, uh, "Just to 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 weigh against the anti children uh, <laughs> criticism, quote, not another slasher sequel, but a fun if far fetched new Halloween story with a cheat title." I don't know. Is it far fetched? <laughs> um i mean maybe not i mean there are aspects of this film that are not that far-fetched i think that's one of the 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 reasons that that it speaks like it's not it's there's a lot of weird wonky stuff going on in this film but at the end of the day the idea of a of a large corporation doing things that at the very least do not have your children's best interest at heart that uh you know i mean that's I mean, turn on the news. That's, that's that's the world we live in today, and that's the world we're, 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 we've constantly been in. Uh, so I, I think this film, this film does have an intelligent core uh, at the heart of it. To whatever extent that core is able to shine through the other elements of the film, I guess you could have a discussion
0: there. Yeah, it's funny. So I watched this movie with the commentary track by the director, Tommy Lee Wallace – and he talks in this about how he's like, okay, so I was going out to make a horror movie, and and I thought about what am I really afraid of? And he said, well, you know, the thing that scares me more than anything is is like surveillance and and corporate control of things, like yeah, uh, uh, big, big government and corporations and people who want to spy on you and control your life. And those are the things that really scare him. And uh, and he wanted that to come through in the movie. And I say, you know what? It it it's a kind of a weird fit to try to jam that into some. kind Kind of druid magic storyline, but that is the film you made that you succeeded. Yeah. So they're commenting about technology in the early eighties, yeah, and and trying to
1: think about where we're going. In a weird way, like how I mean, what we have today is kind of like this weird magical uh mashup of uh, you know of of, of technology and uh, and, uh, and and p- and pagan sorcery. So uh, <laughs> yeah, kind I don't of, think it's yeah. far off the mark. Like if you were to ex- ex- Explain what we have today to, uh, to to ancient civilizations they'd be like oh yeah that's witchcraft, I know what that is that's- there
0: are indeed hobgoblins in your content recommendation algorithm
1: yeah, yeah, so yeah, you could really go down the rabbit hole, like making a case for what this picture is saying about the world today
0: you, you had a funny note somewhere about the uh, about the catchphrase for the movie or the tagline in the teaser trailer there there are a couple different trailers for this film and i think we're gonna have some trailer audio
1: here in just a second but there's a teaser trailer that came out that i that i love where it's just a tarantula crawling out of a halloween mask followed by a big just silver logo like a logo that looks like it would it would be hidden in your children's candy to cut their tongues
0: (laughs) uh with the catchphrase the night no one comes home (laughs) this is like many movie marketing taglines directly contradicted by the plot in which Rob, if you'll follow along with me, the children who would be massacred by the Android Druid plot in this film would generally be at home (laughs) when the massacring happens because they have to be wearing their evil Halloween masks and watching TV at the same time. So unless Mm -hmm. they're out somewhere watching TV outside the home, they will come home. They'll just, they will just be killed by booby trapped masks in the home.
1: Yeah. I mean, because I guess the, the the message of the film is you should be afraid about what's happening to your child in the home. That's where the media is reaching them. Um, but instead the, the marketers are like, well, let's just lean into the idea. The kids are out of the house. I hope nobody's hurting them. That sort of thing. Hope the monsters aren't getting them on the street, but even Michael Myers in the first film, Michael Myers comes into your house. That's the problem. Am I wrong on that? Doesn't he come into the house? No,
0: no, no, no. He does. I mean, uh, this in the is something. Car. I, yeah, you know, he gets you in houses, places where you should be safe. Uh, it's like this a rat. Is, <laughs> uh, you. Know, this is something that I've often said about the uh, the distinction between the original Halloween and a lot of the slasher movies that followed. I, I think that uh, a big difference is in their sort of moral outlook, whereas in a lot of the slasher movies that followed i think that there is often a kind of uh hastily thrown together vulgar moralism in them i mean this you know this has been observed in everything from scream to you know it, it is when the when the teenagers do something that is perceived as sinful they are then punished by the killer for straying outside the bounds of the, the, the straight and narrow life but the original halloween i don't think ever really has that sense of vulgar Punishment for sin going on in it. Instead, mm-hmm. there's there's something much more frightening and uh, and irrational about it. It's just this threat coming in from out of nowhere and for no reason. Yeah, and I and I think that's one of the things that made it especially scary compared to the 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 less scary and more vulgar uh, slasher movies that would copy it over the years.
1: Yeah, I mean Michael Myers is not cackling as he does anything. Uh and in a in a weird way that that is very much in the same uh spirit. Uh, our villain here is not cackling. He's maybe smiling a bit. Uh, like he yeah. enjoys his work, but he's not, ultimately his whole grand scheme is not like, I got to make these demons happy. Uh, uh-huh. It's about like, this is what the planets require. And yeah. this is what must happen uh, just cosmically for our planet. And therefore I am doing it uh, and it's going to happen. Um, and yeah, there's there's not really any celebration beyond that.
0: Yeah. I mean, what I was thinking about, uh, the most recent viewing of this movie, I realized that the villain of this movie is, he's sort of a, corporate technological put christ back in christmas kind of guy except instead of christmas it's like put the demons back in halloween Mm -hmm. like he's mad that halloween has been turned into this uh this cheap commercialism where kids just go out and have fun when really the hills should be running red with blood
1: yes yes he's like time was we just sacrificed all the children on halloween and now it's just about plastic masks we're taking halloween back and he's
0: disgusted by how profane our culture has become
1: yes (laughs) All right, well, on that note, let's go ahead and have a taste of that trailer.
0: You don't really know much about Halloween. Halloween. The barriers will be down between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red.
1: Halloween, watch out. you happen to know anything about this Cochrane? All I can tell you, mister, is watch out. Season He's watching you, friend, sh- I guarantee you that. Trick or treat. Trick or treat. Hey, Mr. Cochrane, just what is the final process?
0: Fellas, I, I was just kidding. I want a mask. Can I have a mask?
1: Uh, uh, just <laughs> what I had in mind for you, little buddy. Why, Cochrane?
0: Why? Do I need a reason? I do love a good joke, and this is the best ever. A joke on the children. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. You've got to believe me. They're going to kill us. All of us. Stop it! The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. Happy Halloween. Stop it!
1: Halloween three season of the witch the night. No one comes home.
0: Okay. I guess it's time to talk about some people. Uh, All right. We've already mentioned uh, the director, Tommy Lee Wallace, but I guess uh, to, to briefly describe a bit more about his career, he's the, the writer director, of uh, of this movie, and he uh, had previously worked on other John Carpenter joints. Yeah, this was his first directing credit. Uh, but it ultimately kickstarted a long list of
1: other films, including *Fright Night* two. Uh, I think you already mentioned the original and, in many ways, quite excellent TV adaptation of Stephen King's *It*. Yeah, uh, I mean, n- n- maybe not everything on that one uh, was 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 absolutely marvelous, but it had some wonderful and frightful elements to it. I mean, yeah. it, it, among many other things, um, Tim Curry's fabulous Ooh. performance as Pennywise the Clown. I Love Tim Curry. Let's see, he also directed, uh, a, one, uh, he directed a sequel to John Carpenter's Vampires, Vampires Los Muertos, in okay. 2002, which I did <laughs> I not see. I haven't seen that one. <laughs> so, I did see Vampires, uh, but, but, but not the, the sequel. Uh-huh. Um, let's see. He also wrote the screenplay to Fright Night 2, and of course he was uh, on the screenplay for Halloween 3. He also wrote the, the uh, screenplay for Amityville 2, The Possession, which was also in 1982. So he was really firing on all cylinders uh-huh. in the early 80s. And like you said, he was a longtime member of the Carpenter crew, having uh, provided art direction on 1976's Assault on Precinct 13.
0: Now th- we were debating earlier to what extent John Carpenter was creatively involved in the the story content of Halloween Three. I guess uh, we weren't sure if maybe he had done some some kind of uncredited writing and he uncredited work on the script. Maybe uh, he certainly didn't direct the movie. But he was a producer on Halloween Three, and most importantly, John Carpenter did the music on Halloween Three. And how have we not mentioned the music yet? I would say if there's one thing to mention about Halloween Three, it's the music.
1: Yeah, the music on this film is absolutely incredible. Uh, now, now, to be clear, it's it's not just Carpenter on the music mm-hmm. here. Um, it's uh, it's John Carpenter and, and Alan Howarth, both born 1948. Um, now, Carpenter alone was a, a game changer in electronic film scores and basically helped usher in an entire musical genre. Uh, Alan Howarth collaborated with him on scores for Escape from New York, Halloween 2, II, Halloween 3, of course, Christine, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, and They Live. Um, and uh, he uh, um uh howarth also worked on some solo scores and he's done a lot of work in special effects sound design uh for instance you can pull up various sci-fi sound databases like clip databases uh that are used in various audio and audio video, video productions and you'll find stuff by him um hmm. and uh y- yeah this score oh man this this is not an extreme position to take in the slightest, but I'd rank Halloween 3 as either the best or one of the best scores from these two gentlemen. Um, and, and I'm torn on that because I also really, really love Big Trouble in Little China's score. These are both scores that I frequently listen to on their own. Uh, I, I've yeah. listened to the scores to these films more than I've seen the movies.
0: Uh, I, I listen to the score for Halloween 3 all the time. In fact, I just have a big John Carpenter music playlist, uh, Carpenter music scores that I listen to, especially around October, but uh, all throughout the year, actually. Sometimes it's good productivity or mood music for me. I Yeah, I mean... I just cannot overstate how much I love this score. It is just lead heavy and light as a feather at the same time. It's got these wonderful swelling bass synthesizers, uh, that, that set the tone for a lot of scenes. But then, um, there's a real kind of, uh, prickling lightness of, of the high pitch synthesizer leads throughout it, especially in, uh, in chariots yes. and pumpkins, which is mm-hmm. probably my favorite track from, uh, from the soundtrack, but you just absolutely wonderful.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a tremendous score. I uh, I will say when I do listen to it, I I use a playlist version of it where I've taken out the Silver Shamrock uh, jingle, which uh-huh. is vitally important to the plot, uh, but but is not great listening on its own. Okay, well, uh, because it's supposed to be a commercial <laughs> jingle. Um, we'll have to describe that more in the plot breakdown. Yeah, but yeah, the, the tremendous score, and I think that the science fiction elements of the plot. It's it, I, I suspect. That have, if Halloween 3 had been a Michael Myers movie, I am I think it probably wouldn't have been as great of a score because I feel like the science fiction elements in this film gave them permission to lean more heavily on the synth, you know, to yes, make it I, more yes. of an electronic score.
0: Yes, you're right about that. and uh, And I think that comes through in visual elements of the movie as well. There are it is inflected with a bit of a, a science fiction flavor that's not there in the other visual influences on it, like the earlier Carpenter movies. Um, but the, actually in the Tommy Lee Wallace commentary, I think there's one part where he says that the, the log line for the movie was witchcraft in the computer age. And, yeah. you know, I don't know if I would have summed it up that way, but after hearing it, I'm like, yep, that that's exactly what this movie is. Yeah. It's like pixels and potions. Yes. Now, I think we mentioned already that the script that Tommy Lee Wallace wrote for this was, I think it it wasn't a totally original work. It was based on an original script.
1: Yeah, uh, Nigel Neal uh, was an uncredited writer on this. He lived nineteen twenty two through two thousand and six. Um, last name spelled K N E A L E. So I'm I'm not totally sure I'm saying that correctly, but. Um, uh, but he wrote the screenplay to the incredible nineteen sixty-seven sci-fi film *Quartermass and the Pit, aka Five Million Years to Earth, which is a is a film we might cover on Weird House eventually because it's it's one of these films that that has, I guess for the time, pretty, pretty cool effects, but effects that don't necessarily hold up as well to modern viewers, I guess. Mm-hmm. But in spite of those effects and any shortcomings that might be there, the film is incredible and has some wonderful ideas and is legitimately creepy. And I know influenced a number of, of, of director, future directors, uh, including John Carpenter. He includes nods to it in films such as In the Mouth of Madness, which is another, another one of his films that I, I adore.
0: Can I tell you that I've actually never seen In the Mouth of Madness in full? I don't know how oh. I, I, I made it this far, but I'm planning on watching that this very night, tonight. That's oh, what's really? on the docket. Yeah.
1: Ooh, well, it's, oh, I, I, I love it. I have nothing but, but great things to say about it. Spoil nothing. I will spoil nothing. But David Warner's in it. I will say that. It's Ooh, great. Perfect.
0: All right. Joe, Speaking want- of perfect, <laughs> <laughs> it's time to talk about our star. Tom Atkins. Tom Atkins plays the lead of this film. He uh Dr. Daniel Chalice, who uh I, I've before, I think this was on Movie Crush, referred to Tom Atkins as strawberry Burt Reynolds. Um <laughs> he's he's this got this hilarious kind of masculinity um that is put to wonderful effect in this ludicrous movie. I mean, I don't know who came up with the idea for his character uh, to be the way it is, or if it was sort of a, an evolving collaborative thing, but this is a protagonist who's just, everything is wrong with him and he never stops drinking.
1: Yeah. He's a hard drinking, hard living, um, Kind of a character, he's, uh, I think a lot of it makes sense when you realize Tom Atkins, a uh, veteran character actor, born 1935, still with us as of this recording, um, you know, he's, he's been in, in a ton of films over the years, uh, some, some very good films, but he he's, he's often typecast as a cop. Yeah. And so he kind of plays that cliché, you know, hard-living, hard-drinking, um, you know, uh, you know,
0: tough, c- guy, yeah.
1: tough guy cop character in this. But he's not a cop. He's a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like cop as doctor. Tom Atkins as cop as doctor. Um, and it, it makes it a little weird, but it works, you know, because this is the type of role that Atkins excelled at.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's... It, I, it's, it's hard to describe how funny this main character is not. in he doesn't tell jokes. I mean, he's just conceptually hilarious. Like almost every scene when he comes into the frame and starts talking or doing something, I start laughing. <laughs> so,
1: um, if you, if you're having trouble picturing Tom Atkins, uh, he's easily recognized by his hearty mustache and, uh, his roused hour machismo. Um, he shows up in a couple of key Carpenter films, including 1980's The Fog, and he has a, a role in uh, 1981's Escape from New York. Mm-hmm. Did a lot of TV work, and it appears in some other notable weird movies, including 1980's The Ninth Configuration, which is, uh, is, is quite a fascinating film. 1982's Creep Show, 1986 Night of the Creeps, which yes. is, is great in
0: that. Night of the Creeps, I think that is his real... That's like the uh, Tom Atkins movie to see. If you want to see him absolutely in his element and, and, and working to the max.
1: Yeah. Uh, he's also in 1988's Maniac Cop. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't think I've ever actually watched a Maniac Cop uh, from beginning to end, but I suspect Tom Atkins plays a cop in that film. Yeah, Not probably, the Maniac yeah. Cop, because that's, that's our man um, Zadar, but, um, uh, but I, I assume he plays a cop.
0: Yeah, uh, one thing I want to make clear, despite the fact that I absolutely stand by his his ambient uh, hilariousness in Halloween three and some other movies, I don't mean that Tom Atkins is a bad actor. He absolutely is not. Like I, he Tom Atkins is wonderful. He just has a, a, this undeniably comedic aura in Halloween three, and and it's it's hard to get under it to describe exactly how it works. You just have to see it.
1: Yeah. Uh, his character is is quite a mess, seems to have multiple relationships going on, um, you know, is, is uh, you know, has is, is, is divorced and also has some very questionable workplace behavior oh, yeah. that um um that he, would absolutely not fly.
0: Absolutely inappropriate semi romantic relationships implied with multiple other characters. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but as that's well the character. as character. That's Daniel Chellis, not yes, Tom Atkins. Yes. Now, one of these women that he has a relationship with,
1: though, is our, our female lead, uh, and that is the character Ellie Grimbridge, played by Stacey Nelkin.
0: This, this is also one of the weirdest things about this movie. There is an absolutely baffling and inappropriate romance that goes on b- between our main two characters, makes a- comes out of nowhere, makes absolutely no sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it. I don't. I can't imagine who looked at the you know the at the, the dailies and said, yeah, this works. Yeah, this works. Great. Let's, let's keep it as
0: is. <laughs> Real chemistry.
1: <laughs> uh, Nelkin was born in 1959. She was also in Graham Chapman's Yellow Beard the following year. She was in 1994's Bullets Over Broadway. She was in the 1981 Tony Danza Eight movie Going Ape. And she did a lot of TV work, including Star Trek The Next Generation and a role on the soap opera Generations.
0: Mm. Um,
1: This is funny. To go back to um, uh, Roger Ebert's review, he wrote... Uh, the one saving grace in Halloween 3 is Stacey Nelkin, who plays the heroine. She has one of those rich voices that makes you wish she had more to say and in a better role. But watch her, too, in the reaction shots. When she's not talking, she's listening. She has a kind of rapt yet humorous
0: attention that I thought was really fetching. Hmm. I, I mean, no offense to Stacy Nelkin, like she, she's she's fun in this, but I, I'm not sure I quite understand what he's talking about in the the reaction shots. However, one thing I really do want to give Stacy Nelkin immense credit for in this movie is how she handles the final twist in in the movie. Should we spoil it? Oh go ahead. Yes. Whatever. Okay. So, you know, whole movie no indication of this whatsoever. I mean, not even the slightest clue that this might be coming. Uh turns out at the very end our our second lead character uh is a robot. She's just an android and uh, attacks Tom Atkins in a car and tries to kill him and like she gets her head twisted off and gets torn to pieces and stuff and is still acting and trying squirting out orange juice and and trying to kill Tom Atkins and uh and I mean, yeah, yeah. Thumbs up. Thumbs up for this this Android killer performance.
1: Now, did you take it to mean that she
0: had been a robot the entire time? Because I, Good I question. thought it meant that she had been replaced at some point. I didn't know either, okay? So, I've seen this movie tons of times, and I have never figured that out. Is she an android the entire movie, or does she become an android at some point? I don't know. Hmm. There's some questions about the
1: programming, no matter which way it falls, though. Yeah. Uh, I should also point out that Ebert also singled her out as the only good thing about Yellowbeard in huh. a, quote, a fetching performance. So he was
0: a big fan. Well, you said fetching twice? Well, uh, in two different uh, reviews, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Roger Ebert has been fetched.
1: <laughs> All right. Let's talk again about our, our villain, our fabulous villain. A villain who, re- really, when you start talking about... Uh, about villains and horror films, and ones that become franchises in and of themselves. Like this is this is one that that would have worked uh, if they'd really wanted to milk this. If this had been a financial success, and they're like, "Yes, more season of the witch, season of the witch two, please," uh, then you might have had to, to to bring him
0: back one way or another. Oh yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter if we chopped his head off and he burned him into a pile of ashes. He's got to come back, like like Michael Myers. Yeah. This is a, again
1: Dan oherlahey playing. Connell Cochran. Um, O'Herlihy was born in 1919, died in 2005. Uh, the old man himself, an Irish actor and eventual naturalized U.S. citizen who worked on the, on the stage and then on the screen. Uh, one of his first big roles was playing Macduff in Orson Welles' 1948 adaptation of Macbeth.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: I've seen that one, it's been a long time, but um, yeah, Welles himself played Macbeth, and the cast also features Roddy McDowell and Alan Napier.
0: Hmm, interesting. I've never seen that one.
1: Oh, uh, that's good. You know, black and white, very, very atmospheric. Um, I, yeah, I think I took a, a Shakespeare course in college and ended up watching a whole bunch of Macbeth adaptations, and that was one of them.
0: Yeah. So the main thing I know Dan O'Herlihy from is Robocop, in which he yeah. plays the old man, the, I don't know, the president or the CEO of OCP, the evil corporation that's trying mm-hmm. to buy up Detroit in. Uh, in RoboCop. And he's the guy in the board meeting where he says, Detroit has a cancer and the cancer is crime.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he, especially as an older actor, he really did a great job playing the, the kind of suit villain. And in this, he's essentially a corporate suit, but with this warlock twist uh, yeah. to him. So it's uh, it, it stands a little bit apart from these other roles that he was in, but, uh, but there's still a bit of the old man there as well.
0: You know, Halloween three kind of shares a little bit of thematic DNA with RoboCop.
1: Yeah, I mean they're emerging from, uh, you know, the same time period basically, so it makes sense. Um, both commenting to some degree on some of the same
0: themes. Yeah, like t- technology and corporate control are the villains, though in weird, abstracted sci-fi or, or, or supernatural ways. Yeah.
1: So, uh, O'Hurley did a wide variety of films uh, in his career, touching on so many different genres. You start looking through it. like This man did Western, sci-fi. He did true swashbucklers back in the day when like swashbucklers were, were a dependable thing. He was in war films. And, uh, of course, he was in Red Scare movies as well. <laughs> uh, he was in Invasion USA from 1952, oh, which... It was actually featured on MST3K and I I know I've seen it but I don't remember much about it. I think if I went back and watched it again, uh I would have to uh, uh I, I would have to I would
0: have to I feel like I want to see it again just to, to to see him in it. Um Wait, is Invasion USA not also the title of a like Chuck Norris movie where a bunch of communists invade the United States and had scenes shot at that mall in Atlanta? Could be.
1: I'm not that fa- I'm not really familiar with that picture. This one is yeah, a 52 film that has I think a
0: lot of stock footage in it, like an alarming amount of stock footage. Oh yeah, okay, I was right. The Invasion USA. I guess it was either either got a remake or there was another movie of the same name, starring Chuck Norris, came out in 1985, directed by Joseph Zito, uh, uh, also starring Richard Lynch and. And Billy Drago, and I'm sure some other – I bet Billy Drago plays a communist. Uh, But yeah, it's like a (laughs) communist invasion, a land invasion. Richard Lynch plays a patriot, I'm assuming, right? (laughs) true patriot. (laughs) (laughs) No, he plays somebody named Mikhail Rostov. (laughs) Of course he does. (laughs) Uh, yeah, i I've, I've. It's been a long time since I've seen that one. I don't know if I've ever seen the '50s version.
1: Dan O'Hurley played played a number of different uh, characters. In note, I mean, he was, um, he was the lead in a 1954 adaptation of Robinson Crusoe. Mm-hmm. He played Doctor Caligari in a 1962 adaptation uh, by Roger Kay. He played the good guy alien Grig in
0: 1984's The Last Starfighter. He was on oh! Twin Peaks. Uh, Sorry, I I remember I watched a taped version of The Last Starfighter a lot when I was a kid, taped off Mm TV, and uh, yeah, that was him, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I found a hilarious photo uh, online of him in in full like monster alien uh, costume, but also standing in front of a bookshelf uh, holding a pipe in his hand. (laughs) It's been a long time. That might actually be a still from the movie, and I just don't remember it, but uh, it it looks pretty hilarious. I I don't think that's in the movie. (laughs) I don't think Grig ever comes to Earth, that I recall. Is it not? It's been so long. Like, if you told me, "Oh yeah, there's like an hour's worth of footage where Grig sneaks around the home, the kid's hometown and they like buy fast food and go on an adventure at an arcade," I would be like, "Okay, that sounds like something you would see at the time."
0: No, but the basic I plot seen is it th- forever. Uh, the kid, the kid, uh, the main kid in it. He's like good at the arcade video game, and it turns out it's a the arcade cabinet there has been placed by an armada of space fleets that are that are like looking for talent throughout the galaxies for pilots and he gets kidnapped into space by the guy who plays the music man and mm. uh then he has to go in space and and uh grig is his co-pilot and they fly around and, and fight something called the codan armada
1: ah i remember having a lot of really cool at the time anyway really cool uh, evil aliens in it oh yeah totally Anyway, he, he has a ton of credits. Uh, we could just go on and on. Uh, he worked a lot. Um, his, uh, uh, he, he had, uh, I think he had a number of children, including uh, a son by the name of Gavin O'Herlihy, who appeared in such films as Willow. So if you, if you happen to rewatch Willow anytime uh, soon, this is the guy with the blonde beard, the strawberry beard guy um, hmm. that, that is um, sort of a, a, a minor second-level hero in it. Uh, and yeah, it's, that's, that's the old man's son.
0: I had no idea.
1: So, I mean, those are the main uh, cast members, but we have have a few other just to to roll through here. Uh, Jonathan Terry, uh, who plays Starker, is in this. Uh, This is a guy that just popped up. Uh, He played the colonel in in both Return of the Living Dead and its sequel. Hmm. Uh, There's Al Barry, who plays the character Harry Grimbridge. This is our, our heroine's. Uh, uh, father, uh, this is the doomed Papa who dies trying to save the world from Halloween masks, pagan gods, and robots. He was also in 1985's Reanimator and appeared alongside uh,
0: Dan O'Herlihy in 1984's The Last Starfighter. Now, there's almost kind of a cameo performance in this movie by uh, by Nancy Kais, also known as Nancy Loomis. Uh, mm. You might remember her from the original Halloween, in which she plays Annie Brackett. As she, I think, she's billed as Nancy Loomis in that one. She was born 1949. Uh, I love her in Halloween, and I always wished she had been in more movies because, uh, I don't know, She she's just got a, like a, a real fun kind of cool, acerbic attitude. And she only did about a half dozen movies or so, and more than half of those are Carpenter movies or Carpenter associated movies. So she was in Halloween, the fog assault on precinct 13. And in this movie, she makes a brief appearance at the beginning as Tom Atkins, abrasive ex-wife. And Mm -hmm. uh, she, she's funny in, in the little bit of screen time that she has very much like, uh, you know, Oh brother. She's just not very impressed by Tom Atkins. Um, But the actress Nancy Kyes, uh, after she mostly got out of film, I looked up her her post Hollywood career, and among other things, I found out she is a sculpture artist. And so, I found a gallery of sculpture that she did, uh, all in the medium of garbage. So, these are sculptures. Uh, images were hosted on the uh, the Pomona College Museum website, and I think this is from the year nineteen ninety nine. And so, you can look up these uh, if, if you do a Google search for them. And I I think they look pretty cool. There's like one that is. Uh, a bunch of garbage making what looks like some kind of giant leg. It's like a thigh with a calf and a and a big uh, and a big roboty kind of foot. And then this this beetleborg looking thing. I don't know how really to describe it, but it, it is this uh, I don't know robot type thing with like an insect carapace body, but it's all made out of trash. Yeah, I, I had not seen these
1: before, but these are these are great. I love this. Genre of sculpture, they're like taking um, refuse and garbage or recycled materials and then recreating something artistically out of it. I was actually at a museum this morning and there was an exhibit uh, where an artist was utilizing things of this nature, um, in this case... uh, like oil drums, ammunition canisters, barbed wire. And they were, mm. uh, you know, I they think they, they created this huge snake in this piece called Not a Snake, uh, where, uh, uh, anyway, you know, similar uh, technique you know, to a certain degree. Uh, so, so I love this kind of work. If I, if I had the chance to see uh, this particular artist's uh, work in person, I would jump at the chance. Yeah. Sydney Pound Snake. All right, uh, Dick Warlock is in this, so we have to mention oh, him. Dick uh, Warlock. Dick yeah. Warlock is the man. He plays an android assassin. A a pretty big role for Dick Warlock, uh, actually. It's one of the more notable uh, android assassins in the picture.
0: There's a really good scene where Tom Atkins punches him in the stomach and then pulls out his robot guts, a bunch of wires and stuff, and he spits frozen orange juice all over the place.
1: Yeah, the androids are great in this because they're they're basically indestructible, but also entire, they're way too fragile as well. Yeah. So <laughs> they're, they're hard to kill. They're super strong, but the least little thing can um, can actually uh, um, undo them. All right. Another actor of note, uh, Patty Edwards plays a secretary in this. She lived 1931 through 1999, did a lot of TV work and also some very notable voice acting roles later in her, in her career. She's the voice of the eels, Flotsam and Jetsam in Walt Disney's The Little Mermaid. Hmm. And she also uh, plays the fate Atropos in Disney's Hercules. Uh, interestingly enough, she also played Bull Shannon's mom on Night Court. So she played Richard
0: <laughs> Mole's mom. Oh, interesting! Uh, taking us back to what was that? Uh, uh, oh um, God, what was that movie called that he was in as the, the, the destruction of
1: of Jared, Jared Sin? Sin. Yep. Yes,
0: yeah, Metal Storm. The destruction Metal Storm, of Jared yes. <laughs>
1: Oh, now we mentioned how Michael Myers is technically in the movie. Well, Jamie Lee Curtis is also technically in the movie. She has a fun cameo uh, as both a curfew announcer in the, the creepy company town, but also as a telephone operator. Oh, yeah. So just a voice cameo. Yeah. yeah. In the same Always way that Michael that. Myers only appears on TV.
0: Oh, well, you know, uh, another thing worth noting about this film is the cinematographer. It's Dean Cundy. Of course. Now, we don't have to go in great detail on Dean Cundey because we've gushed about Dean Cundey before. I think we probably spent half of the episode we did on Without Warning talking about mm-hmm. Dean Cundey. Um, the, the Dean Cundey is a wonderful cinematographer, and I think he is to a great extent responsible. He's partially or maybe even mostly the answer to the question of, how come even though this movie wasn't directed by John Carpenter, it feels like it feels like the bullseye for that, that John Carpenter feeling, and it's because of the Dean Cundey look. Hmm. Yeah, C- Cundey. Um,
1: yeah, you'll remember us praising him on 1980s Without Warning, but yeah, he worked on such films later on as Jurassic Park, Apollo 13. So he was a big deal
0: yeah not just horror and john carpenter stuff like he went on to to do some uh do do a lot of mainstream hollywood work but always yeah he's just got great distinctive visual style i've got some more thoughts about his influence on on how this movie feels in a bit here i i I was
1: kind of surprised to see that ralph bakshi uh has a credit on this this is the in the the, quote-unquote animation department of this film um Bakshi, of course, is a legendary American animator who gave us Fritz the Cat, Wizards, and 1978's The Lord of the Rings, and, oh, and 1983's Fire and Ice as well. But I'm not totally sure on this, but apparently one of the cartoons that's playing on the TV in the bar, again, along with, like, a trailer for Halloween uh, 1 or something, um, uh, that apparently is one of his cartoons playing. And so maybe that's all he did on this film?
0: That's... Uh I can't imagine where else his fingerprints would be. Yeah, I remember what does it it's like there's a plant dancing around and making boink boink sound effects. Yeah. Okay. There you go.
1: Now this is generally the point in the connections where we talk about uh, the score, but we've already talked about the score and the people responsible for it. So instead of talking about it even more. Let's just go ahead and hear a little bit from it. This is a taste of uh, of the the chariots of pumpkins.
0: Is that a take on chariots of fire? Chariots. I, bu- of pumpkins? I
1: believe it is.
0: Yes. Okay.
1: <laughs> Not oh, that it man. particularly sounds like it, but I guess that was the um, that was the inspiration. They were inspired by evangelists. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I think they have uh, surpassed their, their inspiration. Vangelis is great. He just put out
0: a new album of space music, by the
1: way. I, I've been oh, listening to it. It's super great.
0: Not knocking on Vangelis. I'm just saying, like, I for me, Halloween 3 cannot be beat. Yeah. I don't think Vangelis ever did a horror uh, score, though. That's the, the, the real kicker. So I guess we – yeah, we should do a, a sort of full plot breakdown. I think we'll we'll probably do a little more uh, tightly zoomed in toward the beginning of the movie uh, than, than toward the end. But I wanted to, to describe the very opening because it cements so much of the feel of the movie. So the very first thing you get is pixels. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the first concept suggested by this movie is weirdly computers, which is, again, not what you would expect given – Uh, Halloween or the themes of the season or or witchcraft or whatever, but the opening credits are sort of filled with pixelated lines of orange on a black void. And it is sort of suggestive of the opening of the first movie, which if you remember uh, it's, it's just this sort of zooming shot of a Jack-o'-lantern, but then you eventually zoom in so far. You're like, what are these orange colors I'm looking at in -hmm. this case? It starts zoomed very far in, Uh, but eventually pulls out to reveal a pixel pumpkin. In fact, a pixelated jack-o'-lantern. Which is great because it's like, I'm so close to the technology. I cannot see its true form,
1: its true intent. And it's only in time that you realize, oh no, this is what the technology
0: wants and is doing. And it's also so close to the screen that the pixels themselves, you can see them almost sort of decomposing into their individual little colors that form the uh, the the full pixels, you know, you can see like the little, the uh, I, I don't know what you call them, little bits behind them. Mm-hmm. But the very next thing we see is an empty setting. There's a dark asphalt road illuminated only by distant street lamps, and this is under a roof of a freeway overpass, like a like a concrete cathedral. And you get swelling synth bass, and then titles start filling us in about what we're looking at. We see Northern California then October, then Saturday the 23rd. And for several seconds, as the titles fade in and out there, there's nobody in the shot until a figure emerges from deep in the distance and he's running toward us and you get the needle pricks of the synthesizer score fading in and he runs closer and closer to the camera and you see it's an old man and he's terrified like he's running away from someone. And I, I love this opening. I love the opening shot and the music that accompanies it. And I think it's a perfect example of that beautiful John Carpenter, Dean Cundey texture that their movies are full of. Again, even though Carpenter didn't direct this one, the, the Carpenter, Cundey, Wallace texture that these movies are full of. Uh, and and I think it's it's a very characteristic frame of this cinematography style the, the kind of frame I'm talking about is you might remember these from Without Warning as well, but especially uh, other movies like the original Halloween. There will be a wide shot of an empty, desolate setting, which we see in full without a subject before the subject enters it. And I'm just such a sucker for that. <laughs> I, I don't know quite so why it just makes my horses whinny and I love it. Um, and actually, in the in the director's commentary, Tommy Lee Wallace says that he often stole these shots of the empty sets from the tails of existing shots. So after they slated, but before a character walked into frame, he would just sort of like use that, even though maybe it wasn't originally meant to be used. Oh, and and also along with this from the very first scene, the musical score is just a 10. Just love, love, love it. But anyway, so on the screen, we see the old man turn back around, look behind him, and he sees what he's afraid of. It's car headlights cresting over the horizon in the dark, and he panics and he keeps on running. Um, one note I made while I was rewatching this was, uh, uh, what year? Uh, I was thinking, what year was Marathon Man? I think it was sometime in the 70s, but the yeah. opening here reminds me very much of the scenes where Dustin Hoffman is getting chased by the Nazis in New York, like running mm. under the freeway overpass. Uh, running on foot with the car chasing him. Yeah, that was I that was I think mid 70s, so you know, it it
1: definitely would have come before. Well,
0: anyway, so in this movie we see the old man running into I think it's a junkyard or like a a used car lot, I don't know. There's cars, but then there's also car parts and he's banging on uh this office trailer door for help, but there's nobody there. He's all alone out here and the headlights are closing in. And then we notice that the old man has something brightly colored hanging out of his pocket. It looks like a big floppy piece of orange fabric. What could this be? Well, suddenly he's trying to hide because the car is closing in on him. And as he's trying to hide in this lot, he bumps into one of his pursuers. He is surprised by a twerpy looking guy in a gray business suit and black gloves. Uh, Trying to give you a, a mental picture uh, Picture a young Adam Scott with slick-down hair if he worked <laughs> at Lloyd's of London in the 80s. So, you know, very very gray, gray business suit, black gloves, formal-looking, but also uh, that guy. And the old man tries to fight back, but the business twerp is incredibly strong. He He grabs him, and he forces him to the ground, and he pins him to the concrete under a car's rear fender. And so is this the end of The Unnamed Old Man?, Well, no, because he reaches out and he manages to take hold of a chain that's fastened to a wedge block that's uh, under the tire of a nearby car is keeping it from rolling down toward them. And he yanks the chain, the car rolls in, and it pins this bespoke attacker between the two bumpers, between two cars. And the business twerp reacts to this in a strange way, like he doesn't cry out in pain. Instead, he sort of slumps over as if he is a machine that somehow just lost power. So the old man squirms out from under the vehicles, and then he he escapes off into the night with this bright orange object in his hand. Then we cut to another location, a, a service station in the rain. Another moody, unoccupied establishing shot. Again, love it. Uh, and a, a few overhead lamps are, are just sort of like burning against the blue night and rain is pouring down and we see the title one hour later. And here's where things for, so like everything up to this point has been, has been like, Oh, wow. It is moody. Interesting. I love the music, love the, the, the photography, what's going on. This is the first part where I notice things start getting funny. So the attendant at the service service station is watching a TV And it's a British news feature about how part of Stonehenge mysteriously vanished nine months ago. (laughs) Uh, So first of all, like, isn't this Northern California? Did they get like the BBC News broadcasts in 1982? Well, this is the Carpenter universe. So we have to remember,
1: in the Carpenter universe, Donald Pleasance eventually becomes president of the United States.
0: So. (laughs) Uh, very anglophilic. A, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. It works for me, I guess. So, okay. they re, So in this world, they rebroadcast BBC news in Northern California. Yes. Okay. Um, and yeah, at one point the announcer is like, it weighs more than five tons, making its disappearance a mystery indeed. <laughs> and then on the TV, after the, that broadcast, we get our very first silver shamrock commercial, uh we will be subjected to this many many more times throughout the movie mm-hmm. and it is so intensely annoying that it goes full circle and becomes a gorgeous work of art that induces full body bliss uh, i feel like we should describe it in in detail like rob what what would you say to describe the silver shamrock commercial I would say, yeah, first of all, the
1: music is intensely and intentionally annoying. It is is jingle mania. It is supposed to annoy you and and, and it's calibrated to a child's uh, wants and needs. Uh, But then we also have voiceover narration in it that is also ingenious because it is creepy man voice trying to sound like kid-appropriate cartoon voice, you know, like a a children's commercial. But it's clearly a creepy guy voice doing it, uh, which gives it this unsettling flair.
0: Yeah, so it's to the tune of London Bridge is falling down, uh, presumably Mm -hmm. because that's public domain. Uh, but the lyrics are, uh, they, they keep counting down the days to Halloween. So, like, whatever day in this, in the plot you're watching it, it'll be saying, eight more days to Halloween, 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 and does the whole tune. And then it ends with silver shamrock. And so, so while you're hearing this annoying uh, tune repeat over and over again, you watch this green Clover logo zoom at the screen, and then there's this demented child head tilting back and forth. I think the child in that commercial might be Tommy Lee Wallace's son. Um, and, uh, and then you see the three Halloween masks, and these are the three iconic silver shamrock Halloween masks. You get the skeleton, the jack-o'-lantern, and the witch. Mm -hmm. And then a voice comes on. I believe also the voice is the voice of the director, Tommy Lee Wallace. And he says, yes, kids, you too can own one of the big Halloween three, three horrific masks to choose from. They're fun. They're frightening and they glow in the dark. And then Rob, I wonder if you noticed this. So right after the commercial plays the uh, in the scene, the TV loses power and it goes dark. So this is just as like thunder is rolling ahead. I guess the idea is, you know, lightning strikes and the power goes out. But right before that, the last thing we see on the TV, it looks to me for a few seconds like the exact same Silver Shamrock commercial is starting over from the top. Uh, so I, I don't know if they're, they're looping commercial. They're, like, paying to play them back-to-back, back, but that would be ingenious if that had happened in the movie.
1: You know, one of the great things, I didn't really think about this, but the Silver Shamrock um, tune here is set to London Bridges Falling Down. And they're, they're, this is, of course, a very old tune, a very old uh, nursery rhyme uh, kind of uh, jingle. Uh, and there are various theories regarding its origin and at least yeah. one of them involves child sacrifice uh, so it's kind <laughs> of a perfect uh per- perfect uh inclusion in this film oh i wonder if that's intentional i bet it is i i i bet it is the thing that feels just silly and uh you know and totally the domain of the the child's carefree world is rooted in blood
0: we'll have to look that up after this uh, okay yeah. so anyway the power goes out a uh, gas station attendant he starts looking around he thinks he hears something and he peers out into the storm and it's wonderful atmosphere you got a, a tower of pins oil cans inside but then outside is just rain and dark and distance and then the the gas station worker is surprised by the old man from before who is running from the suits and he's frantic he says they're coming they're coming and in his hand he's still clutching that orange thing you saw earlier And, oh, we realize it is the jack-o'-lantern mask from the TV commercial. So already the gears are grinding in your head. Uh, And then they hit you with something else immediately, a new scene. Here comes Tom Atkins. He's also coming in out of the rain, but he's coming into a domestic foyer, wearing a a khaki jacket tucked up over his head and a red shirt. And he is showing up at his ex-wife's house to surprise the kids. Uh, so again, Tom Atkins' character, and this is played, uh, his character is named Dan Chalice, and his ex wife, as we mentioned, is, is played by Nancy Kyes, or Na- Nancy Loomis, who played Annie in the original Halloween. And she's immediately very unimpressed by his appearance. Uh, mm-hmm. she's like, Oh, brother, here's this idiot. But <laughs> he shows up with presents for the kids. They've got two kids there at, at her house, and he has brought them Halloween masks. One of the things
1: uh, that I love about this is when, when we when we see Atkins' character, Dr. Chalice, visiting his kids, the kids are not excited about these older, hard plastic, um, you know, plastic Halloween masks where they have the plastic front and the little elastic string that straps it to your face. Yeah. Um, they're excited about the prospect of these soft latex masks, uh, the, in this case, the silver shamrock masks. And mm-hmm. I remember feeling this way as a kid, you had those old, cheaper plastic masks and they felt like kind of like kid stuff, you know. You, you, why, why would you wear that when you could take this latex mask of pure
0: synthetic flesh and just put it over your entire head? I, I know exactly what you're talking about. They're incredibly ungrateful. Like he gives them the masks. He, well, by the way to say he brings the masks in in brown paper bags as if they were liquor bottles which (laughs) is appropriate for his character yeah Uh, but then he gives them the masks and they're just like uh go to hell dad Uh, (laughs) you know they they just don't want them at all it's like the equivalent of the the kid being surly because you know he got a a a polystation 5 from a confused grandparent you know this is this is not what you think it is this is not cool
1: yeah Um, and in retrospect those other plastic masks they were really cool masks we should have been grateful
0: yeah, yeah, you know, and these these plastic masks, if they had worn the crappy masks that, that their dad brought them, they they would not be killed by the T V commercial. I guess we we know, we don't know their fate at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. But no, they say, Well mom got us silver shamrock masks and, and those are the good ones. And yeah. so they you know, they're they're just like, Wow, thanks a lot, Dad. <laughs> But then uh, Tom Atkins, his beeper goes off. he's 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 a doctor, and he is on call. And so he's like, "I gotta go to the hospital <laughs> and uh, and his ex-wife says, "Drinking and doctoring, great combination." And she is she is correct in pointing that out. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but that won't stop him because I think in almost every scene, Tom Atkins is either drinking or has been implied to be drinking before the scene. Oh, but, uh, but right before he leaves the house, they're like, hey, you know, are, are the viewers not annoyed enough yet? Maybe we should hit them with another Silver Shamrock commercial. So we watch another one. Well, the kids watch it with their, their faces approximately five inches from the TV screen, wearing their Silver Shamrock masks. They are just gunning for Halloween. Uh, and, and so I, I don't know if you noticed this, too. Maybe there was something I missed about it. But it seems that in the universe of Halloween 3, TV commercials are somehow – publicly scheduled like TV shows so that kids are able to deliberately tune in for Silver Shamrock commercials, which they watch repeatedly and on purpose, even though they already have the masks.
1: Well, this is of what they call now appointment television, right? <laughs> uh, the idea that, it, you know, back, back in these days, like the, the, you knew what was coming on TV and you watched it. Uh-huh. Uh, you, you just watch TV in general. Uh, so I don't know.
0: This felt this felt appropriate. Okay, well, anyway, so, uh, so Tom Atkins, we find out that the call on his beeper is about the old man who was being chased earlier. The, the uh, gas station attendant who found him has brought him to the hospital. And at the hospital, you see the old man. He's on a gurney, and he starts freaking out because he sees a Silver Shamrock commercial play on a hospital room TV. So I think this is the third time we're seeing it. Mm-hmm. And he starts saying, they're going to kill us, all of us uh and so what to do what to do about him saying that Well obviously uh Tom Atkins says a hundred milligrams thorazine, <laughs> so they heavily sedate him uh and then while he's lying there heavily sedated in a hospital room, uh oh, uh, the suits have arrived the The guys in the gray business suits show up with their with their black gloves, and one of them is here at the hospital to finish the job. Uh, and, but, but by the way, before that happens, I just want to point out how funny it is that when they show the old man like drugged up in his hospital bed under hospital sheets in his hospital room, he's still clutching the silver shamrock pumpkin mask, uh, just there in his, in his room. Well, that's his proof. Uh, uh, there's also a funny bit here where Tom Atkins, uh, I think because he's drunk, he goes back to his office to sleep on the couch mm-hmm. where well, he may pre- just be living. Yes, yes. And he he briefly opens the uh, refrigerator in his office. And I was trying to look in there and see what it was. It looks like he's got a bunch of Cokes and he's got milk and then huge cans of tomato juice and then champagne glasses on top of the fridge. And I think maybe a bunch of pieces of chicken.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the champagne and tomato juice like that. That was his signature cocktail, right? The Dr. Chalice special.
0: Um. (laughs) Oh, man, I'm trying to imagine that.
1: (laughs) That doesn't sound good. It's like a yeah. It's is it's it's a it's a twist on the mimosa and the uh, and the bloody mary. Maybe it's, it's an actual bl- thing. I don't know. <laughs>
0: it's called a bloody tom. Yeah, bloody chalice.
1: Now uh, I have to say, our uh, our witness here, Harry Grimbridge, clutching the mask. Yeah, the androids do get to him, and they just they murder the hell out of him. And Awful. Yeah. This film has some some ultimately some great kills in it because the androids seem to be like, it's almost like there's a, a neural network at play trying to figure out how to murder humans mm-hmm. um, because they, they do so in ways that, that totally work but are slightly illogical. So they don't just necessarily like stab somebody or choke them. It's stuff like pinching their eyeballs and crunching their skull or, or twisting their head off, um, you know, things that, that just seem uncanny uh, in, in, a very, in a very effective manner.
0: Yeah, so so the uh, the android here kills the the old man with like an eye gouging pinch kind of thing. Yeah, uh, and then, and then immediately uh, gets rid of the evidence by uh, dousing himself in gasoline in his car. Yeah. and and self immolating, which ultimately ends up becoming a great
1: plot point because. They're they're analyzing the remnants of the the burn, and they're like, oh well, the body we didn't get the body. This just car right. parts in here. What happened to the body? Somebody messed up. Uh, when in reality, it's because well, that was an android, and you you just don't recognize it.
0: Uh, but before he does that, he start, uh, some people start screaming, and this rouses Tom Atkins from his his nap on the couch. Um, And so he gives chase and then I'm wondering, well, does this hospital not have security? Why is it up to the resident physician to chase down murderers? (laughs) Um, But anyway, he chases the android outside, uh, which again, we don't know is an android at this point, but uh, you know. If you've seen the movie enough times, it's hard not to refer to them that way. He chases the guy in the gray suit outside, but the guy, yeah, he burns himself up, uh, and his car explodes. I remember Tommy Lee Wallace in the director's commentary saying, uh, "When in doubt, blow it up. Blow it up big." Uh, <laughs> well, we don't know what's the, power. We don't know
1: what's powering that android. That, that's true.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't
1: think any of the other ones blow up, but uh, you know, still fair enough. <laughs>
0: he's got a he's got an onboard uh, nuclear nuclear fission reactor or something. Um, any, anyway, next thing we see Tom Atkins is on the phone with his wife, his ex wife, sorry. And, um, he is, uh, he's like, yeah, I won't be able to pick the kids up. And she starts yelling at him. You can hear through the phone. And he's like, well, you just relax for a minute. Two men died here tonight, but he gets no respect. And uh, and so Tom Atkins picks up the silver shamrock pumpkin mask left behind by the dead guy. And he's looking at it and he's like, what's up with this? And there's good ominous music. And and then you get that one of those, uh, you know, dental plan. Lisa needs braces, but it's they're going to kill us. It's the old man (laughs) saying that over and over in his head. Uh, Then we get another uh, update on the day. So it cuts to Sunday, the 24th. And here we meet Stacey Nelkin for the first time. She shows up at the hospital and it's revealed that the dead man, Harry Grimbridge, is her father. Her character's name is Ellie Grimbridge. Uh, so she comes in to speak to the police and she says, yes, that's my father. What happened? And then, and then the sheriff is uh, – I wanted to know, what have I seen this sheriff in before? I'm not sure, but he seemed familiar. But he's just kind of gruff and he goes uh, – she says, what happened to him? And he's like, ah, some crazy man killed himself in the parking lot right after. Drugs, probably. <laughs> case closed yeah drugs probably uh and so she's upset and uh and Tom Atkins sees her and you think he's going to go ask her what this is about but instead he just walks away and then uh, you get another thing Uh, on Wednesday the 27th you see Tom Atkins goes to visit a friend of his who works in one of the labs I don't know if this is at the hospital or somewhere else but uh, Tom goes to visit his friend to say hey what was up with this assassin and uh, she says well we don't know yet he's just a pile of ashes sheriff says he was on drugs (laughs) and Tom says uh, he goes that doesn't make sense I've seen people on drugs this man was in complete control he looked like a businessman (laughs) so I guess the logic is he Looked like a business, did you see his suit? He couldn't have been on drugs. That was no hippie, yeah. <laughs> um, and she says, uh, she says he had to be one strong businessman, you don't just pull someone's skull apart with a, without a little lower arm strength. Know what I mean?
1: And I wonder Tom's, if this is subtle commentary, too. The idea of you're dressed like a businessman in this, in this, t- at this time in this get away world, with anything. you can, yeah, you can walk into a hospital and just murder somebody, and people would just be like, I don't know, There's nothing you can do.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that would sort of fit in with what Tommy Lee Wallace was saying about his attitude when he was making Mm -hmm. the movie. So I guess that checks out. Um, uh, But uh, yeah. But anyway, so Tom Atkins is like, hey, do me a favor. Check this out yourself. I I was having a hard time thinking exactly what he's asking for. I think he's asking her to do lab work on the burned remains of the killer to find out what kind of drugs he may have been on. Do, Do you think that's what it's supposed to be? I think so. And this is a case where we
1: kind of come back to the idea that it's Tom Atkins as cop as doctor. So yeah. his doctor character ultimately ends up doing a lot of things that are more in keeping with what a TV cop would do. Yeah. Um, and you ultimately just kind of roll with it because these are yeah. things a protagonist does. So you just follow along.
0: Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Also, that he and his, his friend at the lab kiss as he's departing. So yet again, yeah. Tom appears to have multiple inappropriate semi-romantic relationships with numerous coworkers and and other characters.
1: And we, we don't seem – we're not asked
0: to have thoughts about this one way or another. It's <laughs> just – they just presented it as it It's kind of happens. Huh, okay. Uh, and then – okay, so we get a new update on the date. So it's Friday the 29th. And then we see Tom Atkins at a bar. And I love this bar because it has this complex mural on the on the wall behind him. It looks like the it's like the Hieronymus Bosch bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you, you never get a really close look at it, so I'm not sure what all is in the mural. But it's very busy, busy decorations. Yeah, it's a very gloomy looking bar. This is not.
1: It's it's more in keeping with uh, the bar on the Simpsons <laughs> than it is with <laughs> yeah, uh, with like a nice, comfy bar where you know where everybody knows your name.
0: Yeah, uh, so this is the place where he's watching the cartoon on TV that may have been animated by Ralph Bakshi, Mm -hmm. and then a uh, Silver Shamrock commercial comes on. No, wait, no, this hasn't happened yet. First, he says, hey, Charlie, can we have another station? I guess talking to the bartender, and he's like, you got it. So they change the channel, and then it's Halloween, uh, the John Carpenter original, and I think uh, the the TV announcer says, the immortal classic, followed by the big giveaway at nine, brought to you by... And then the Silver Shamrock commercial plays again. So I think this might be the fifth time we hear it in the movie so far. Mm-hmm. But yep. now it's two more days to Halloween. And when Tom Atkins expresses dislike of the Silver Shamrock commercial, the bartender kind of gets offended. He's like, hey, man, don't you have any Halloween spirit? <laughs> Uh, but then, so while he's at this bar uh, having a drink, he gets approached by Stacy Nelkin. She comes in and she introduces herself. She says, hi, my name's Ellie Grimbridge. Well, one of the nurses told me I could find you here, which was funny. Okay. So Yeah. Oh, yeah. He'll be at the bar. <laughs> and she asks, did my father say anything to you the night he died? And so first he tries to lie to her and says, uh, oh, yeah, he told me, tell Ellie I love her. And she doesn't buy that. She's like, no, you know, you're not good at lying. Uh, So instead, uh, Tom Atkins spills his guts. He says, I don't know. He came in scared. He was clutching a Halloween mask. And what he said was, they're going to kill us all. And then, uh, oh, and then after that, he says, and in a little while, he was dead. And I don't know what the hell is going on. Uh, So I guess at this point, you can just tell they're going to team up and find out. And that's what the rest of the movie is going to be.
1: You know, the thing is that Grimbridge, he he didn't have the complete truth here. They weren't planning to kill us all. They were only planning to kill most of the children. Uh, yeah. Or at well, least I like all, the, all the children who watch TV um, in America, at least.
0: They, actually, even more than that, they weren't going to kill all the children. They were going to kill all the, like the cool kids, the kids whose parents bought them the expensive upscale mm. Halloween masks. Yeah, uh, not not like the kids who were stuck with the hard plastic masks that Tom Atkins tried to give his kids.
1: Yeah, I'm not saying those are acceptable numbers either, but uh, but just saying that that technically what he was saying was not true.
0: Uh, So the next thing they do, they go to Harry Grimbridge's closed novelty store, and they they do some detective work, or I guess Stacey Nelkin has done the detective work. Tom Atkins doesn't actually do a lot of figuring things out in this movie, Uh, mostly like she does, and then he's like, okay – and so she she uh, has done detective work by looking down events from her father's diary, and she realizes that uh, that uh, he did everything in his schedule up until he was supposed to go up to a uh, to restock Halloween masks from the Silver Shamrock uh, factory, which is in a nearby small town called Santa Mira, and that's the last thing uh, from his diary that he actually did. So they decide they're going to go to Santa Mira to investigate. Uh and then I, I gotta say when they're when they're about to head out of town there is a really funny scene. Uh, which uh, always, every time I've showed this movie to people, this is one of the scenes that makes people laugh the most. Is where Tom Atkins is on the payphone talking to his ex-wife. He's like, you know, yeah, I gotta be out of town. I'll I'll be back soon. Look, uh, see you later. And then he hangs up the phone, and when he and like as he hangs up the phone, somehow he moves, and the camera moves to reveal a six-pack of Miller. <laughs> <laughs> It's been there the whole time, but it was obscured until the until he moves out of frame. Mm. And then he grabs the six-pack and runs straight to the car. Uh, and then uh, I think we see at this point a TV display in a storefront playing the Silver Shamrock commercial. So at this point, we're definitely at like six or seven times of seeing it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, I, and I think we're supposed to be sick of it. Yeah, we're supposed to be sick of hearing the jingle too. But it's also growing more and more ominous because we're, we're getting – Increasing info, uh, increasing intelligence on on what exactly this is all about.
0: Yeah, so here we have basically the setup to the plot. You know, this is the end of Act One. They're going off to Santa Mira to find out what's going on, and we get some narration while they're traveling. Uh, to Tom Atkins or one of them is reading about uh, this place. They say it was. Uh, they say Santa Mira was founded in 1887. Grew up around a large dairy. Around World War II, a wealthy Irishman, Connell Cochran, converted it into a toy factory. Silver shamrock novelties, now given over to the manufacture and sale of Halloween masks. Proud community, predominantly Irish. I don't know where they're reading that, if that's in like the Road Atlas or whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, as they're driving up there, I got to comment on the landscape. So green, so green. Maybe that's just how Northern California is, but it was beautiful.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then ultimately, we get, you know, the entry into the creepy town, the town where things are not quite right, which is a a staple of so many horror tales. Uh, And they pull it off effectively here as well.
0: Oh, yeah. So they're driving around. I love these parts, too. They're driving around, and everybody's just peeping out at them, peeping out mm-hmm. through windows and looking around corners as as they drive in. And uh, Stacy Nelkin says, wow, I feel like a goldfish. And, and uh, Tom Atkins says, yeah, it's a company town. And we see there are security cameras everywhere. This is a town under strict surveillance, and there's just... Uh, technology and and the, and it's a, and it's a panopticon here.
1: And of course, as with a with a with a, with an actual panopticon, uh, the the boss, the oversight, can show up at any moment. And that's yeah. that's uh, one of the things we see here. Is that there's the there's the limo that's Connell Cochran in there.
0: Oh yeah, after the, so they check into a hotel. Yeah, and uh, the the hotel proprietor or motel, I guess it's a place. It's got these little like uh, rooms that are side by side at one level that are this garish combination of pink and white. Um, and the, the proprietor, as this, this limo cruises down the street, he says, ah, here's Mr. Cochran now. He says, he's a great man, Connell Cochran, a true genius.
1: I mean, and he is. We, we get more information on this later, but sure. yeah, he was a maker of toys, but also a collector and ultimately a master of automatons because, uh, we, you know, the, the lines are drawn between, uh, you know, old clockwork novelties and these modern uh, android servants that he's created to carry out his, uh, his strange plan.
0: Yeah. Now, so far, this movie is a little light on characters for a horror movie, because, you know, a horror movie, especially a, a more vulgar one, it's always got to have some characters who must suffer an ill fate that can't be, uh, you know, can't be visited upon your main characters, at least not until the end. Um, so some other people show up. That's right. We have this family
1: in an RV and uh, and, and they're a lot there. <laughs> yes, they're, they're a lot.
0: Yeah, they're in a Winnebago, I think. They're they're mm-hmm. blasting loud music. Uh, they have the mo- the world's most disgusting redheaded child. Uh, the, <laughs> the dad's name is Buddy Kupfer. He's from San Diego, and he's like a big Halloween store guy, I think, or costume store or something. He he buys a lot of silver Shamrock masks. Yeah, and uh, and then they reveal their child, Buddy Junior, and as Buddy Junior is like riding off on his bicycle, he gives his mom the finger. So very. <laughs> Uh, very ill-behaved child. And I think I recall from the Tommy Lee Wallace commentary track him saying that the kid who plays the obnoxious child grew up to become like a priest or a rabbi or something. Huh fun.
1: So yeah, they're in town. Apparently people come to the company town to, to buy wholesale masks and other products so that they can sell them at their, like their mom and pop shop uh, or in way or or a chain they happen to run. Uh, that seems to be the situation here.
0: Yeah, but it's already, like, two days till Halloween. It seems a little late for them to be, like, scoping out sources for Halloween masks.
1: Yeah, you'd think. I mean, it seems to be the case, at least now. Like, they they start clearing out the Halloween stuff that close to the date. It's
0: time to start selling all that Christmas stuff. Yeah. Uh, Oh, but another buyer uh, arrives at the motel. This is, like, an angry lady who's – the character is named Marge Gutman. She's played by Garn Stevens, who at some point – Tom Atkins was her husband. uh, So (laughs) – Uh, In real life. Uh, But anyway, on the detective front, uh, you get uh, Tom Atkins. He reveals that, oh, Harry Grimbridge was here. He stayed at the motel right before he disappeared. So, uh, so he goes and he tells Stacy Nelkin that, and she's like, "Oh, okay, let's go right to the factory and learn more." And Tom goes, "Whoa, slow down! I need a drink first." <laughs> uh, and then here also we get uh, some of the the development of the absolutely the just the baffling and tonally inappropriate love story uh, that that makes no sense makes no sense. And then she's a robot.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, a totally unearned love story. I mean, you, there are plenty of, of you know. Solid tales you can turn to where people in 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 situations of great stress are brought together romantically. It, you know, it, it can be earned, but here it is absolutely not earned. It's just, it's just uh, as, as as if uh, someone said. And then we have a love story here, right, to, to sell some more tickets. And they're like, okay, we'll we'll make it happen then.
0: Yeah. Anyway, so so there's like a very WTF kiss, and then and then we cut to like more about the town. So we see the, the curfew going into effect. And, uh, and so we, we learned that Santa Mira has a curfew curfew beginning in the evenings, which is announced over these mounted loudspeakers townwide. I think this must be the part that was, um, Oh, what's Jamie Lee Curtis doing the, mm-hmm. the announcer voice Jamie Lee curfew, if you will. Right. Uh, and then we get lots of great empty shots of the town. Again, it's that, it's that wonderful Dean Kundi magic, you know, just the, uh, the, the empty settings, uh, that, that he knows how to pick out and frame so well. And then a great scene between Tom Atkins and the town drunk. So Tom Atkins is out breaking curfew for some reason. I guess he was going to a liquor store because he has somehow acquired liquor at the beginning of the scene.
1: Yeah, this is a good this is a great sequence, though, because this is another staple. You come to the weird town where something's not up. What do you do? Well, you get some you you find the town drunk and you get him some uh, liquor and then he'll spill the beans. He'll tell you about all the dark, horrible secrets going on here.
0: Uh, but this was, like, incidental. Like, Tom Atkins, clearly, he bought the liquor for himself. And then when he meets the town drunk, he's like, yeah, okay, you can have some.
1: That's right. Yeah. In other tales, it's very intentional. Like, here's the guy. I need to milk yeah. this source to find out what's going
0: on. Here's just a happy accident. Uh, but the, the guy tells him, he he informs Tom Atkins, he's like, okay, here's the deal. Connell Cochran, uh, he brought all of his factory workers in from the outside. He won't hire any locals like me, so I, I hate him. He's he's heard strange rumors about uh, 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 unsavory aduin's at the factory, and he says he's going to make a bunch of Molotov cocktails and burn the place down.
1: Yeah, bad move because, of course, uh, the ears of the corporation are everywhere. uh, So the the androids come from him and they rip his head off.
0: Dick Warlock appears and literally pulls the town drunk's head off, just pulls it off with his hands. Now, somewhere around here, we find out that uh, Tom Atkins he calls his friend back at the lab, and he's like, "Hey, uh, what's the deal with that? Uh, with the, With the remains?" And she's like, "Ah, somebody got this all screwed up. We were running tests on parts of the car. Nothing here but metal and plastic." Ooh, mm, yeah. Uh, now, what was the next? I think after this, it just goes to, to Marge Gutman, one of the uh, one of the toy store or Halloween store owners, uh, who starts messing around ill advisedly with her Silver Shamrock mask.
1: Yeah, the badge comes off, and it ends up being triggered. Uh, yeah, she messes with the Silver Shamrock tack, and then it gets shocked directly in the teeth, with horrifying results. Like it like blasts her face open, and then these big crickets start wandering out of her mouth. And uh, I had to look this up because I, I, for the first time I was thinking, well, those are not really crickets I'm used to seeing. turns out they're Jerusalem crickets native to the Western United States. Um, they actually have nothing to do with Jerusalem. But um, if you
0: haven't seen those crickets before, well, that's why. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, there, there are some cool looking bugs in this, but yeah, I did not good bug wrangling on the film. And she's reading a, a weird looking book right before she blasts her teeth off. Oh yeah, I had to look that up too. The, the Eagles'
1: Gift by Carlos uh, Castaneda: um, "Quote a challenging foray into the heart of sorcery creates a landscape full of terrors, mysterious forces, and insights. A landscape of the sorcerer's realm of brilliant visions, lonely tasks, and human warmth and comradeship." Uh, that's the uh, just the Amazon <laughs> description for that <laughs> okay. book. I'd never heard of it before, but apparently, it, maybe it was a you know a flash in the pan back in the day.
0: Huh, yeah. Uh, I've definitely heard of the author but yeah I, I don't know that book. Yeah. Contains sorceress. So there you go. There you go. Uh but of course white lab coats in a white van arrive to remove the body um and they're like uh she's going to get medical care. And so they they're taking her out uh and and Tom Atkins and and Stacy Nelkin come out and they're like what's going on and uh, Connell Cochran arrives. I think this is the first time we actually see Dan O'Herlihy. He arrives uh, in person to reassure them. He's like, don't worry. We will be getting, her uh, the very, the very best care at our factory. We have a wonderful facility.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: He's, he's very hands-on. Uh, yeah. it's, it's excellent. Uh, so the next day they go to the silver shamrock factory for a tour along with the, uh, the buddy cup family. And the tour is given by Connell Cochran himself. Uh, I should say that uh, I know from the commentary that the exterior of the factory was actually filmed at a dairy works that manufactured like powdered milk products. And this is in a a town in California, I think that is called Loleda. And uh, the interior shop floor where you see them making the masks was actually the legendary Don Post Studios in L.A., which uh, is a a famous mask-making studio. Uh, Of course, this was the studio that made the William Shatner mask that was spray-painted white to create the Michael Myers mask in the original Halloween.
1: Yeah, that, that is neat. Uh, now, no, this, this sequence is also fun because you know nothing good is going to come of any of this. Uh, but the, to, the, the tour of the factory uh, was, was slightly reminiscent of Willy Wonka's tour of the factory, you know. Yes. Uh, where he's like, you know, this is where the magic happens. And don't, well, don't worry about what goes on back there. <laughs> Behind those doors, it's quality control. You don't need to worry about it.
0: Oh, no, 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 not quali- uh, uh, Final processing. Final That's the,
1: processing.
0: Yes. Right. Yes. They get curious about, they see these doors labeled final processing. Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, oh, one of the kids, Buddy Jr., he tries to grab a mask. He's like, I want this mask. And Connell Cochran's like, oh, has it been through final processing? They are no good until they go through final processing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he gets him a, a finally processed mask instead, which I think that means the, the ones that have not been through final processing are not yet lethal.
1: Yeah, they don't have that Stonehenge microchip that will right. you know, fry your head and turn your brains into uh, creepy crawlies
0: there's a, there's another great part at this factory tour where, um, the factory also includes like a museum of Connell Cochran's other creations. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a bunch of automata and, uh, and other kind of toys and things. But also Buddy Kupfer explains to Tom Atkins, he's like, don't you know about Connell Cochran? He says he invented sticky toilet paper. So he's some kind of famous novelty genius who invented like a million iconic toys and practical jokes. He's like the Nikola Tesla of fake vomit.
1: Yeah, but, but also yeah, created killer androids and has orchestrated this massive like international plot like you know, like Interpol would be interested in what he 's doing here uh, uh, to in order to bring about like the mass sacrifice of of countless children so as yeah. to uh, we 're not exactly sure uh, yeah. and, and that's the <laughs> And that's the beauty of it. Like we, we as normal humans, should not fully understand what a powerful warlock is trying to do. Like, is he is he trying to maintain cosmic balance? Is he accumulating, um, you know, divine powers for himself? I don't know. That's warlock business. That's not human business. The less we
0: understand, the more darkly magical it is. We do get a bit of a Bond villain explanation later, but it doesn't seem to explain everything. Like He, give, he gives the, the Blofeld speech, but it only goes like a quarter of the way to really explaining what's going on.
1: I think he even says something to the effect of Tom Atkins' character. He's like, like you'll, you'll have to figure out the rest for yourself. Um. <laughs> a magician never reveals his secrets. Um, yes, that's it. A magician never reveals his secrets. Yeah. Uh, I love that.
0: Uh, but so anyway, later that night, uh, Ellie disappears and Chalice uh, discovers that she's gone and he, he's ambushed by a bunch of the gray suited creeps. And, he, uh, and you get the sense that he's starting to figure out what's wrong with these guys. You know, could they be not human in some way? Uh, so he goes, he escapes into the night and eventually he breaks into the factory to see if he can find Ellie there. Uh, so, a bunch of stuff happens there. He comes across this creepy knitting automaton, which I love, and he accidentally mm-hmm. knocks its head off. Uh, and then he gets into a fight with an android, played by Dick Warlock. And uh, well, one thing I like about Dick Warlock in this movie is that he is repeatedly shot from the neck down, just like Michael Myers in the original Halloween. Mm, nice touch yeah but uh, but anyway, so he fights him, and eventually, uh, Tom Atkins overpowers this this powerful Android. So you know, good on him. He makes the orange juice goop come out of his mouth. <laughs> but then he gets captured, and uh, Conal Cochrane comes out with more androids and they grab him, and then uh, so he's their prisoner now. And then finally it goes to the last day. it's sunday, october thirty first. Uh, and I guess I might skip lightly over the very last things to happen in the movie. Uh, but, but of course, we're, we're now at the finish line. We're at Halloween. And, uh, and you get to see the whole plot revealed. So there's a great scene where Tom Atkins is led through this big warehouse. I guess this is final processing. And, uh, you see this, the huge slab of stone that is supposedly a stolen piece of Stonehenge. Uh, uh, Connell Cochran says it has a power in it, a force, every, uh, even a particle of it and he reveals the plot the one we described earlier which is that he is using pieces of a magic rock from Stonehenge to put those pieces in microchips that are embedded in each badge that is on each silver shamrock mask and then he shows via a demonstration on the on buddy junior of the the cupfirst child that when it is triggered by watching the silver shamrock commercial with the the special signal embedded it makes the microchip like shoot out a laser that turns your head into animals into like snakes and bugs that run all over the place
1: yeah, and we see this go down in, like, the, the, in the test room, in this, this, this steel-plated kind of bunker version, like a, a replica of the, the American living room. And it's a horrific scene. Like, you know, the yeah. boy, he's melting inside that mask, and bugs are coming out. He's in distress. The, the mother faints. The father's screaming. It's a, it, it's a rough sequence.
0: And we, we see Tom Atkins reacting to it as well. He does a very Shatner-esque performance of anguish. He is like mm-hmm. holding clenched fists up by his face. It's – uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh but, but the implication is clear, right? So it's that as children all over the country watch the commercial tonight at nine while wearing their masks, their heads will suffer the same fate as Buddy Jr.'s head. And then we get a great montage of, like, the commercial music playing, and we see scenes uh, labeled as happening in cities all over the USA with kids in their silver shamrock masks. They're out trick-or-treating. I think it's the kids from Phoenix in this sequence that are used on the posters for the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think we see see New Orleans in there. Um,
1: I don't think we saw Atlanta. I feel like I would have remembered that more. Um, But, yeah, it's implied that this is about to go down just across the United States.
0: Okay. Well, eventually we get to the part where t- Tom Atkins is like tied to a chair and Conal Cochran explains his whole plot. So he does the Bond villain speech. And uh, and I wrote this down because a lot- this is good. So he partially explains it. He says, I do love a good joke. And this is the best of all, a joke on the children. But there's a better reason. You don't really know much about Halloween. You've thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. It was the start of our year in our old Celtic lands, and we'd be waiting, in our houses of wattles and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal, and the dead might be lurking in, to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween, the festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago, and the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. And Tom Atkins says, Sacrifices? He says, part of our world, part of our craft, witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. Not so different now. It's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things, you know. The planets do. They're in alignment, and it's time again. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. And happy Halloween. Yeah, it's 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 a wonderful
1: villain monologue. Maybe one maybe one of the best. I'm mean, a little biased, but it's yeah, yeah. it's pretty great because he he doesn't reveal everything, but he 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 tips his his uh, his hand a bit and uh, and and relishes it. You know, he this is a man who enjoys his job and ju- and does just, <laughs> just paint. This the this wonderfully dark and bloody picture, you know, like bringing to mind the idea of the of of the uh, you know of the the fires of turf, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and the old festivals and the hills running with blood. yeah, and the idea that we've invited this thing into our lives without really understanding the deep truth of it, which, uh, you know, works on several levels. It's kind of like the, 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 you know, certainly the scary movie thing is like, you didn't really think Halloween was, was harmless. It's actually harmful, but also the technological side of it. You let this technology into your lives. You gave it to your children, and you didn't think that there would be ramifications for that. Well, tonight there are ramifications.
0: Right, you thought this was just fun, but actually there are real demons in it, yeah. and your your child's head will be reduced to crickets.
1: Yeah, and uh, I mean, it it gives me kind of chills to think about it, especially when you think about the uh, about the technology today, and uh, and uh, and and the degree to which we've handed this technology to our children, and and in many cases thought nothing of it, or thought not enough of it
0: really drives it's one of the dozens of ways i feel like i you know you can't decide like is this movie great because it's ridiculous and hilarious or is it actually just great it's it's kind of both
1: yeah yeah i would agree uh and and uh, and you know, again we're not going to get into the ultimate spoilers here uh but i feel like it maintains this level of quality throughout it doesn't uh you know totally sell it out in the end in fact it has has a pretty great ending i think
0: yeah well, we did already mention the, the big twist with, with Ellie turning out to be an android at the end. Right. So yes. they escape. He escapes the, the sort of Bond execution trap where uh, Connell Cochran leaves him with the mask on, and he's like, you're going to watch the commercial, and it'll melt your head. But he somehow gets out of that. Uh, he, he finds a way out. He escapes the factory with Ellie. But then, yeah, she turns on him and starts, I think, trying to choke him while he's driving a car. And, uh, and yeah, that whole sequence is just... If you watch this with friends, people who don't know it's coming, they will be screaming.
1: All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and end it there then. But I have a feeling we're going to be discussing this one a good bit more on listener mail in the future. So if you have thoughts about the the deep truth of Halloween 3, uh, write in and talk to us about it. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'd love to discuss this more. Really, any any excuse to talk more about Halloween 3, we are down. Um if you haven't seen Halloween 3 and, uh, and you would like to see it, well, luckily for you, it is widely available as a digital purchase or rental, and there have also been some really nice Blu-ray discs that have come out over the years. And who knows? I don't know. As we get closer to Halloween itself, perhaps it'll be streaming on some service or another. I, I, who knows? Uh, maybe like the Silver Shamrock jingle, it'll just, it'll just suddenly appear on your television and it'll be in your life.
0: Uh, I I wanted to have some uh, pithy Connell Cochran style saying here, but I couldn't think of one.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, if you want to listen to more Weird House Cinema, it publishes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Core science episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Artifact on Wednesdays, Listener Mail on Mondays, and a rerun over the weekend.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio.